Hello, shiver seekers. Are you ready to follow us into the Siberian unknown? It's chilly in here. (laughs) I'm Cynthia. And I am Stephanie. You have found the dark oak. exciting day i know i know what you're going to be talking say, about today say, why is this an exciting oh. stephanie <laughs> why is this such an exciting day stephanie i really thought i was setting you up <laughs> okay i mean i do know but you don't know you don't know what i'm gonna say i don't okay really tell me more <laughs> okay I know that you and all of our fellow shiver seekers want to get right to our case today, but I want to take the unusual step of sharing a few thoughts before we get started. Okay. Firstly, this episode will be released on my birthday week. So exciting. Yeah, and I will totally admit my birthday is generally not a big deal for me. I'm very comfortable with aging. I just don't normally get behind the birthday hype. I mean, I do for my kids and stuff, but just not for me. Okay. Just kind of. It's a day and I'm just happy to be here, but, you know, I I don't require copious amount of gifts. Um, But this year is a little different. Um, The last year of my life has been, in a nutshell, kind of like a nightmare, um, as Cynthia is aware. And without getting accused of, like, vague booking, only because I just am not ready to talk about all the details of it yet, my family's been through a lot. And I mention that only because... I want to give accolades to Cynthia, who's already tearing up. (laughs) Um, As am I. We're going to try to get through this. But um, this podcast has really helped me a lot. And my relationship with Cynthia has helped a lot. And you guys, our listeners, have helped me a lot. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really want to celebrate my birthday this year is because I'm still here. And Cynthia and I have been able to create something really fun and amazing. And it's given us a really uh, fun journey together. I actually cannot look something in the eyes right now. (laughs) So I'm looking off to the side. But I will tell you, hearing your positive feedback about our podcast and words of encouragement, even from victims' families that have reached out to us are just so inspiring and encouraging. And, you know, Cynthia and I are real friends, like real friends, not just podcast friends, but we've known each other since first grade. And we cry together a lot. I mean, we laugh until we pee our pants together a lot. (laughs) We have a real friendship. I just wanted to share a few things from my heart about that. So, (laughs) all right, we're going to dry our tears and um, move on because I have two more quick little things. This series that I'm about to go in is going to be our last two podcasts before we get into spooky season. And at the Dark Oak, we celebrate spooky season in a big way. Starting in October, we will be in Oaktoberfest. 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 (laughs) Every Wednesday in October, we will bring you a special Halloween-themed edition. Um, Has a few special add-ons. And we just want to get you in the spooky mood. Make sure you tell all of your friends to come back and visit us every Wednesday in October because, you know, the more the merrier. Let's be spooky together, right? Absolutely. And lastly, and mostly what you listeners came here for, today we're going to talk about the Dyatlov Pass case. And most of you true crime junkies are probably already familiar with this case. Don't worry, I'll cover all of it so everybody can get caught up to speed. But this case has really fascinated me for years, so much so that I have gone like on a deep dive, probably deeper than I should have into this case. So short of going to Russia, um, I have today the most detailed, up-to-date, factual information that I can find. Um, And 
Yeah, I said a series. It's going to be a two-parter. Yay! Our first two-parter! <laughs> Our first two-parter. I tried. I really tried. Um, but I was able to squeeze a lot of it. They're going to be pretty lengthy, but it's going to be a two-parter. Uh, there's just was way too much to cover um, in one episode. So let's get into it. I'm excited. I know. So guys, grab your coffee, grab your wine, grab your sweet tea if you're here with us in the South. Whatever makes you feel good. Yeah. And we're going to get into it. Yes. All right. So February 1959, two men trudge across a snowy expanse. O'Torton Mountain, located in the northern Ural Mountains of the Soviet Union, looms in the distance. The men, university students, pay little mind to the frigid headwind and bone-chilling temperatures as they head forward to what they hope will be a rescue mission for nine of their friends and co-eds who had been missing for two weeks following a hiking expedition. While most would think survival in these harsh conditions to be unlikely, the two men know that their friends were accomplished hikers and some of the most esteemed members of their hiking club at school. The sun is quickly setting, and the two men know they must move quickly if they want to find their friends before the light slips behind the ice-covered mountains. Suddenly, the men see a man-made object, a tent. Though some of the tarpaulin has given way to recent snow, the twin poles still stand erect. They shout to their friends, but there is no reply. As they near the tent, they pass an ice axe sticking out of the snow. Then a half-buried flashlight in the on position, the batteries long drained of energy. The tent is made of thick canvas, composed of three layers of insulating material. The first man starts feverishly scooping snow away from the entrance to his tent. His companion, not wanting to waste time, grabs the ice axe and begins to bring it down in a swooping motion on the side of the tent, cutting his way in. The men enter the tent and quickly scan its contents. Shockingly, Everything seems to be in place. Empty backpacks, padded coats, and blankets neatly line the floor and periphery of the tent, adding an extra layer of insulation and protection from the cold and wind. At the south end of the tent are several pairs of ski boots, with six more pairs lying on another wall. Near the entrance lay a wood axe and a saw. A few personal objects lay around the tent. A camera, a can of money, a diary. All other personal items are neatly stowed. Bags of bread and cereal are stacked neatly in the corner. Parts of a stove sit unassembled in the center of the tent, and an open flask of frozen cocoa waits to be warmed. There is also a cloth napkin holding neat slices of ham. The entire tent gives equal feelings of tranquility and dread. How could a dwelling seem so normal and so foreign at the same time? Where were its inhabitants? What would cause nine young, lively, ambitious, experienced hikers to leave the safety of this inviting tent and instead head into the unforgiving, vicious wilds of the Russian forest? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm obsessed. <laughs> and I know you are. And I'm really excited. And you know what? I feel like I've already learned something. I don't know that I realized that the members of the search party were friends with the the hikers that you're about to tell us about. I don't know that I realized that. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about that. They were an extremely tight-knit community. And these hikers, they were from uh, the Polytechnic Institute, and they were the brightest, the best. And there were multiple hiking parties that were going on at this time. And they were, again, very tight-knit and so immediately when the searchers went missing, all of their friends sprang into action, gave up their study time, gave up time with their families, and went out into this truly unforgiving place. So I'm excited to introduce you to the hikers, Me too. Me too. All right. Okay. Um, over 60 years later, the same questions are all still unanswered. Um, I have, again, devoured almost everything I can get my hands on in this case, the book Dead Mountain plays a big role in what I'm going to present to you today. Um, it, it, it really, if you are interested in this case, that's a great one to get into. There's also a documentary called An Unknown Compelling Force. I watched Lawrence Fishburne's History's Greatest Mysteries. I listened to countless podcasts. I even watched a sci-fi movie called The Devil's Past that uses facts of this case to create a fictitious horror movie. Oh, wow. Just kind of fun. Um, 
and it's fun the the movie uses a lot of the theories to play into the movie it's really kind of interesting i had a lot of fun watching it and then picking out the things that were facts and things that were like conjecture okay like that they used in the movie but anyway that was just kind of a fun yeah but one thing's for sure there are dozens upon dozens of theories to explain what happened to these hikers i'd like to present theories that can be backed up by facts and corroboration um meaning these theories can genuinely explain what happened um, I'll also quickly dispel some popular theories that I believe have no validity. But first, we're going to go back to the morning of January 23rd, 1959, as the Dyatlov group was making final arrangements for their hike in dorm room 531 at the Sverdlovsky Ural Polytechnic Institute, or UPI. The happy chatter and excitement was recorded in their group diary. We've forgotten salt. <laughs> Will we play the mandolin on the train? Where are my leather boots? I love it. Each member of the team worked on a task, finding ways to cleverly store food, categorize medicine, preparing cameras. Overseeing all of it was Igor Dyatlov, the group's 23-year-old leader. Strong and confident with a steady demeanor, he was the indisputable authority on hiking, and each of his companions considered it to be an earned honor to be part of Igor's group. The energy was high in the room as each individual hiker set out their own supplies, including a camera and a diary with which they would document their trip. Each of the hikers currently held a grade two certification with the hiking commission, but after they successfully completed their Ural Mountain exploration, they would receive the coveted grade three certification, which was the highest in Russia at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. They were serious. Yeah. And they were very accomplished hikers. And this is a serious hike, obviously. This is a serious hike. To put them over the Exactly, threshold. exactly. With this grade three certification, they would be able to come teachers of their craft as what's called a master's of sport. I mean, really big accomplishment. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, now, each of them really, they not only kept themselves in line, like they want to do everything by the book, but they also held their their companions okay like to the same standards of like we need to do everything perfectly because our certification kind of depends on it that's awesome yeah one of the two women in the group zenaida kolmogrova or zina as she was called was appointed as the group's diarist on the first day zina was regarded as bright and lively she recorded the final moments in the dorm as quote artistic disorder (laughs) i love these kids so much Ludmila Dubinina, or Layuda, was the second woman in the group. She was the youngest in the group at only 20 years old, but was assigned the important task of counting the money and putting it in a waterproof can. Upon first meeting her, you would chalk her up to being a cute, shy girl, but she was so much more. On a previous hiking trip, she was shot in the leg after a companion mishandled a hunting rifle. What? Yeah. Though she had to be carried out over 50 miles of rugged terrain, she was the one that kept her companions in good spirits. Wow. So she's a tough cookie. Yeah. Yeah. Love her. Yeah, that's awesome. Yuri Yudin was a best friend of the girls, and he was known to be trusting and kind. He was a good friend like everybody dreams of. Right. Unfortunately, Yuri was battling a lifetime of rheumatism and had a lot of back and knee pain. As a matter of fact, the previous year, he had to take the year off school because mm. of his condition. But now he was back at school and ready to get back to hiking. It was kind of too ironic that he was responsible for categorizing all the medicines needed on the trip. (laughs) He was the expert. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So along with Igor, Zina, Leuda, and Yuri, there were five other hikers. Yuri Doroshenko was the legend on campus. He He came from a poor family, but was strong and certain. On a previous camping trip, armed with nothing but his own will, Doroshenko charged a bear approaching their campsite and chased it away. Wow. Yeah. So he, everybody's like, oh, yeah, Doroshenko. Like, <laughs> he's the big man. <laughs> uh, I would say he's the he guy is. I would want on my hiking team. <laughs> yes, please. Yes, exactly. Yuri Kravonashenko, or Georgie, was the entertainer in the group. He was always ready with a joke or to play a song on his beloved mandolin. That's adorable. It is so cute. Georgie. Georgie. Alexander Kolovatov was a strong, silent type that enjoyed studying nuclear physics and smoking his antique pipe. He was the cool guy that always avoided photos. He's actually the least photographed of the hikers. He was just like that cool, calm, like silent type in the back. 
I really want to be friends with these people. I, I, I just, they are so wonderful when I find out about all their relationships. I think that's why I just kept going mm-hmm. is I, I just, I, I thought these, um, these young people were so, they had, they were so promising and they brought so much life. Yeah. So much life. Sounds like it. Rustin Slobodin or Rustic was the group's rich kid. He was the son of affluent university professors, but was as unpretentious and friendly as they come. Lastly, there was Nikolai Thibault Brignols, or Kolya. Mature and serious, Kolya made friends easily and always looked for the bright side in any situation. These seven men and two women donned their backpacks and stepped out of dorm room 531 to head for the tram that would take them to the train station. When they arrived at the train station, the friends boarded and moved toward the third-class compartments. Using a popular scheme among traveling students, they had purposely purchased fewer train tickets than needed. (laughs) If the conductor was to pass through the car to punch tickets, several students would hide under the benches to avoid detection. I love it. (laughs) Layuda was apparently very adept at this maneuver and used her small size to avoid detection. (laughs) They're like, Layuda. Under the bench. Go for it. Wait, that would be you. It would be. <laughs> I'd be under the bench. We're going to try to scrunch you up under the bed later. <laughs> <laughs> let's see if let's see if I could have done it. Yeah, That's exactly. Funny. While aboard the train, the friends noticed they had picked up another traveler, Alexander Zolotaryov or Sasha. Immediately, the students noticed Sasha's age. He was 37 and definitely not a student. Oh, he's an old man compared to these guys. Compared to those yeah. guys, exactly. <laughs> of course, we think he's still a young man. But... I, <laughs> I would be a cougar if I were to date him, but um, yeah. But he's definitely older than these guys. Yes. He had gold teeth and several tattoos, which would have absolutely been looked down on at the Institute, but were common for those having served in World War II, as Sasha had. Oh, interesting. Igor introduced the newcomer, explaining that Sasha also needed one more hiking expedition for a teaching upgrade. And because of a scheduling conflict, he was unable to go with his original hiking group, was instead going to join the Dyatlov group. Okay. Well, the hikers were initially a little taken aback by, like, this old guy. Who's this old man, this elderly (laughs) person of 37 years. That's exactly right. But they immediately warmed up to him. And within no time, he was just considered part of their party. So he was cool. Yeah, he was cool. And they were cool. Yeah. You know, like, I just can't see everything I know about them. I can't see them ever, like, ostracizing anybody, really, especially if they had a love of hiking. Okay. As the train pulled away from the station, Georgie pulled out his mandolin, and the friends sang for hours as they headed towards Serov. As the voices finally began to fade, Zena pulled out her diary and wrote, I wonder what awaits us in the hike. Will anything new happen? And yes, the boys had given a solemn oath not to smoke through the whole trip. (laughs) I wonder how strong their willpower is. Will they manage without cigarettes? We are going to sleep. The Ural Woods loom behind the windows. Oh, she's such like a sweet writer. I know. I know. It's also kind of an ominous. It is ominous. Tone knowing what happens. I actually have a little bit of chills, Mm. but um, yeah. Yeah. But it's a sweet, it's a sweet thought. And I just love thinking of, you know, just the merriment and excitement that was probably in that train car. Oh, sure. Yeah. When they arrived at Sarov in the early morning, they realized their train from Sarov to Ivdel would not leave until later that evening. They attempted to take shelter at several buildings around the mining town, but were turned away. Not one to let this dampen his spirits, Georgie pulled out his mandolin and started playing, singing, and dancing in public. It didn't take long before the police responded to his merriment and arrested Georgie no. for disturbing the peace of the morning. Oh, no. You got to love the Soviet Union, right? <laughs> I mean, let's think about that. Like that. No merriment. No. No merriment. No to be had. fun. No. It's absolutely no fun. <laughs> Definitely not. Luckily, his fellow hikers begged for his release and he was let go with a stern warning. Oh, yeah. Later, Yuri Yudin, who we will find is a survivor mm-hmm. of the Dyatlov Pass incident, he he said he would always think, what if they didn't release him and we had to stay an extra day? Like, would things have turned out differently? Oh, it's those what ifs. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, they'll drive you crazy. You just can't. It yeah. 
So at this moment, they were thinking, this is amazing. What a funny story. Yes. But you think about all these little things. Yes. You know? Yeah. Now, after Georgia's release, the hikers moved quickly away from the police station. And as they did, they stumbled upon a local elementary school. After speaking with the administration, they were allowed to use the facilities to rest and take shelter from the cold if they would agree to give a presentation to the school about their hiking adventures. Oh, how fun. Yeah. That's adorable. In the afternoon, the hikers entertained 35 seven to nine-year-olds by educating them on hiking gear and planning, after which the entire room erupted in song and storytelling. (laughs) Is this the sweetest? I really do love these people. Yes. As the daylight grew short, the hikers said goodbye to their new friends. There were many reports of tearful hugs and genuine well wishes. Uh, Zena was actually a favorite. Apparently, the little girls were just following oh, her everywhere. Sure. Yeah. Well, do you remember being a little girl and looking up at this other, this woman yeah. and being like, I want to be like her when I, that's exactly. probably what it was. That's adorable. Exactly. All of the hikers reported what a wonderful day they had sharing time with a classroom of children and talked happily about it on their train ride to Ivdo. So these are just genuinely good people because not every 20-something would want to spend their day with a bunch of seven and nine-year-olds. Yeah, and they were happy to do it. Yeah, and genuinely, like, made friends with these kids. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Weeks later, after the school children heard of the Dyatlov group's disappearance, the children penned letters to UPI asking about their new friends. All of their letters would go unanswered. No. From Ifdel, the hikers boarded a bus that would take them even closer to the Ural Mountains through the city of Vishai. Upon arriving in Vishai, the hikers quickly made friends with members of a logging work camp and were given food and lodging. Igor befriended a longtime resident of the camp who advised Igor not to venture to Mount Otorten. He reminded Igor that the Monsley translation of Otorten is don't go there. But Igor simply replied that they were looking for a challenge. He said, quote, we are prepared. We are ready. We are not afraid. And I'm sure that was all true. I'm sure that was all true. That afternoon, the 10 hikers piled into the bed of their new friend's truck to head to Sector 41. Now, again, Soviet Union. Everything Mm -hmm. is very... (laughs) <laughs> not not very fanciful or romantic names, but okay. Sector 41 was the place where essentially civilization effectively ended. Okay. Um, that was the end of this transport okay. that they had going on. The team was immediately hit with icy winds in their faces and a realization their journey was really about to begin. For Yuri Yudin, this realization carried different implications for him than it did for his classmates. His rheumatism had been flaring up. Each icy breeze or jolt of the truck made his bones ache. He would have to make a decision to go or to stay. Once in the Urals, there would be no finding help. Sector 41 was a settlement of roughly 50 men sent out on long-term contracts to harvest, chop, and haul wood. Effectively like a work camp. Okay. Was kind of what it was. You know, because we're kind of in like the gulag type uh part of history Mm -hmm. so this wasn't a gulag but it was definitely a work camp um these were not super pleasant i mean you're literally in a work camp in siberia sure not a a men's work camp in siberia i'm getting a visual yeah it it's what you think it is okay yeah um and again really tough work and it took men away from their families for long periods of time but really in the soviet union at this time for men that have no education this is kind of appreciated work. Sure. They're able to at least provide for their families. Sure. The travelers were greeted with open arms by mm. these woodcutters. They were just, they were so excited to see visitors. I'm sure they were also a little excited to see the women. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Pretty young women. Um, but there's no, there's no, nobody wrote about any like, you know, enterprise. No, nothing like that. Or even nobody even made a pass or anything. I'm just sure they were just delighted to see, you know, anybody from the outside. Sure. Yeah. Something new to look at. Exactly. So the woodcutters immediately stopped what they were doing. They baked fresh bread. They made a huge fire. And after they all ate dinner, the hikers and the woodcutters all sat around the stove and had a lively round of poem recitation. Oh, my gosh. I mean, this is like a 
a, really a movie. It really is. Yeah. So those conversation then moved to love and romance, not towards two people specifically, but love as a concept okay. and like one of life's great ambitions. Oh, I love it. I know. Yeah. I know. It's like the best of like sleepovers. Yeah. Right. The night ended with lively dancing and singing. In the wee hours of the morning, the hikers retired to bed. Now, I want to point out, it has been very clear all through the diaries, all through anybody that knew these these hikers, none of them drink ever. Oh, at all. Okay. At all. Um, Especially when they're on a hike. But that just wasn't their thing. Okay. Um, So all of this done, wee hours in the morning, talking, reminiscing, reciting poems, playing mandolin, all this not inebriated. This is just them. Living life. I, that makes it even better, doesn't yeah. it? Because yeah. it's like genuinely, they're just genuinely, yeah, enjoying their life. Yeah. Making the that. most of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The next morning, the hikers rifled through their belongings to find a gift to present to their host. Because remember, these are woodcutters that didn't have to extend this hospitality that they did, but they had such a wonderful time with them. We're like, we don't want to leave them empty handed. So all the hikers rifled through their belongings and they went up finding two fictional books that they just gave to their host. And we're like, we don't have anything else to give you, but please take these books. Oh, I, I, I mean, I keep saying it, but I love them. Yeah. This is why I couldn't stop. Yeah. Cynthia. I couldn't I love stop them. That afternoon, a freelance worker offered to carry the hikers packs further North to a geological site. So this was kind of like a, a cute, like they couldn't believe it. They were mm-hmm. like, yes, absolutely. This man just happened to be traveling up to this geological site to collect some pipes to bring back to the work the camp okay and he was like hey do you want me to carry your heavy packs for you so the hiker said we would love for you to carry our packs for our 15 mile hike absolutely absolutely you can carry our packs there wasn't enough room on the truck for all the hikers but they were able to carry their packs okay and this is again they're not even hike they're like ski like cross-country skiing right to the site and now the hikers during this point, again, this is really where the work is really beginning. And they're starting to document a lot of what they need for the hiking commission to get their grade three certification. So there's a lot of photos during this time period. They would stop periodically, take pictures of what they're doing hiking, taking pictures of the geography. There's also a few really cute, you know, smiling face photos and stuff because they're just having a great time. Adorable. Yeah. Yes. Super adorable. Once they reached the long-abandoned settlement, they selected the best-looking structure in which to stay the night because it was abandoned. And so they found one hut that had some insulation, had something to sleep on. Um, So they decided to stay in there. After making a fire on the stove, the hikers ate dinner and then stayed up talking until the early morning hours again. The next morning, Yuri Yudin could barely stand. I was wondering how he was doing. Yeah, not so great. And he... You know, he's he described it as like the Russian way, like you acknowledge that you're in pain, but you certainly don't make it like it's going to slow you down. Okay. Like you're just going to power through it. Okay. Unfortunately, he could no longer do that. It was clear not only to him, but his companions that it would be foolish for him to continue. And really, it would put everyone at great risk. Yes. At that point, on. at that point, you are you're yeah. putting the whole group. Yeah. So it was unfortunately decided that he would return home. After a warm round of hugs, he began the trip back down the river as his friends continued higher up the mountain. And this is particularly uh, affected Zena and Luda because he was always kind of like the one that was helping them, you know. And so they kind of felt like their little bestie was leaving. So they both wrote in their diaries how upset they were that he had to leave. Sure. Now he hiked down by himself or he got carried down by the truck? Oh, girl. No, he hiked. (laughs) Uh, He had to hike. So what happened, remember me telling you that that transport had gone up to collect these pipes from the geological site? So they put the pipes in the back of the truck. The pipes were so frozen that Mm -hmm. he couldn't sit on it. Oh, okay. So the the truck driver carried his pack, but he had to sludge back 15 miles. By himself. By himself. In this pain. Right. Following the truck. Okay. At least he did have, like... I guess. I don't know. But... He describes it as particularly grueling. It sounds it. Yeah. So basically, he's like, I can't continue on the hike because I feel like my joints are all going to fall apart. Now I have to ski by myself 15 miles back down the mountain. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So he kind of had it pretty rough. Yeah. During this time. 
Over the next few days, the hikers would follow rivers north toward Otorton Mountain. Investigators have used hikers' diaries and camera rolls to piece together the hikers' final days. Because remember, up to this point, we have Yuri Yudin's testimony because he was with them the whole time. Yeah, And he's now back home. At this point, though, there's no one living that can tell us really what happened. We're so just piecing stuff together. We're just piecing stuff together. Exactly. So some of this is kind of conjecture from here on out. Okay. When the path through the snow became particularly difficult, the friends would alternate taking the lead, with each shift as leader lasting about 10 minutes. The hikers were frequently challenged to choose between traversing fragile ice over the river or treacherous terrain. Okay, you know, I haven't even thought about, like, falling through ice. And so, like, that's talk about a phobia. So, um, okay. Yeah, most of the river had been frozen over, mm-hmm. but because of a lot of the melting snow in different areas, it's like there's there's just enough ice on the surface to make it feel steady. Mm-hmm. But with the rushing water and ice melt underneath it, you could easily fall through. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> but the riverbanks are rocky. Right. I mean, we're, we're in a very rugged rugged terrain. Right. And you're trying to do it on skis and not like break an ankle and... This was a very challenging hike. Okay. Yeah. Very challenging. I mean, I guess I, I mean, I know that, but I just have never like visualized Mm -hmm. that part of it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, at one point, their path became a little easier when they happened upon a path made from what looked like skis and reindeer hooves. Hmm. Now, this was a sure sign of Manzi hunters. And the Manzi are an indigenous people in the Ural Mountains that practice a semi-nomadic lifestyle, raising reindeer and cattle. And they have a reputation as being a very peaceful people. And so the hikers considered it a good sign. They're like, awesome. Well, we can follow this Manzi trail. Like, that'll make us get there a little easier. Sure. And also, someone's traveled through here and lived. Sure, (laughs) I mean, I hate to say it like that. But, you know, we know that this is probably the trail that we should be taking. Every night, each hiker was expected to complete their assigned camp chore before being allowed to join the stove for dinner. And each night, dinner would be followed by music and passionate discussion. I love it. I love how disciplined these hikers were, that Mm -hmm. they really did everything by the book. Like, Mm -hmm. we have chores that we have to do to keep everyone, uh, you know, to, to make this a proper hike. And I love that they, again, held each other to these really high standards. But then afterwards, they just got to relax and be friends. You work hard and then you play hard. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Day three proved to be their hardest. The Monzi Trail had been lost and snowpacks were as deep as four feet in places. So just visualizing that, I'm five feet. And like you mentioned earlier, they had to take turns leading the way. That's another thing I hadn't like taken into account. You know, somebody's got to like blaze this trail, literally. Uh, yeah. So you're talking four foot deep. So it's like chest high for most For people. an average person. For an average person, not a Cynthia person. Neck high for me. Yeah. <laughs> but chest high. But you're thinking walking through and it's snow and ice. I mean, it's packed. Wow. Ice. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you're really kind of like hacking through it right? Okay. as you're going. The team kept going, though. I mean, they were really committed to this hike. And they started slowly seeing the forest disappear around them as they moved, like, higher and higher up into the mountain. Later that day, though, they were so excited because there was cause for celebration. It was Dora Shinko's 21st birthday. Oh, exciting. The friends presented him with a gift that they had been storing away specifically for him. Oh, that is so sweet. Like every, you know, in a situation like this, everything you carry with you is like, has to be really thought out. Exactly. So for them to have thought ahead and be like, no, we're going to carry this. Yeah. The sweet thought gift was a tangerine, which had only recently been introduced to Russia. I mean, Doroshenko thanked his friends and then insisted on sharing it with everyone. So of course he did. Everyone got a little piece of this tangerine. Of tan- which was a real treat. Yeah, exactly. Especially thinking about like their setting right now. Like yeah, there's this tangerine. So pretend you're on a beach somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. The next day, January 31st, would be the final day of journal entries for the hikers. Oh, Okay. They often wrote in the morning about events of the previous day. So think about at the end of the day, you're not going to pull out your diary. You're going to wake up in the morning and say, this is what we did the previous day. Okay. Yeah. Igor Dyatlov, though, noted in his diary that morning that the hikers set off around 10 a.m. And the weather was already notably difficult, 
because of an aggressive wind. It was the second to last day of their trip, and the nine hikers began to deviate from the river and make their way up the slope in the direction of Otorton Mountain. The group had been lucky in rediscovering the Monty tracks, but the uphill path was slow going. So Igor, I mean, an incredible mind, invented what he called path treading, in which the lead hiker takes off his pack to rest, then he retrieves his pack and catches up with the others who have since flattened the path. So like you would each take a turn. So you're the leader, but technically you, you rest without your pack and then you can follow. So you're constantly moving. Okay. Like shuffling around Um, at the end of the path, they would repeat the process with a new leader. Okay. Um, But progress is still super so slow, slow. super slow. That's the other thing I didn't take into account. Like they're not moving very far. Oh, no. Or very fast. Right. And every single step they take is physically challenging. Wow. Okay. And also the elements. Freezing outside. Freezing. Absolutely freezing. By 4 p.m., the hikers are understandably exhausted, and they began to look for a place to set up camp. They moved to the Ospi Valley, where the wind was weak and the snow less deep. They ate dinner inside the tent, inspiring Igor to write and what would be the group's final diary entry. It's hard to imagine such a cozy place anywhere at the ridge, under the piercing bowls of the wind, and hundreds of kilometers from any settlements. The friends took approximately 10 photos on their last day of life, and judging from the first few snapshots taken, spirits were high. The morning's mood was clearly contagious, and one member of the group drafted the front page of a mock newspaper called the Evening O'Torton. It was dated February 1st, issue one. (laughs) According to the book, Dead Mountain, which I mentioned earlier, among the paper's contents was an editorial posing the question, is it possible to keep nine hikers warm with one stove and one blanket? Plus, there was an announcement for a daily seminar titled titled Love and Hiking to be held in the tent by lecturers Dr. Kolya and the candidate of science, Leuda. The science page claimed that the snowmen or Yeti dwelled in the northern Urals around Otorton Mountain. They are so adorable. I know. <laughs> now, I do think this, uh, several people will recognize the mention of the Yeti here because mm-hmm. it has been used as one of the thoughts behind what happened to them. Sure. It, it's a farce. It's not real. <laughs> right. They're clearly in context. In context. They are being funny in their little mock newspaper that they yeah, created. Yeah, and there's one photo from their role that kind of shows like a blurry photo of one of the hikers and they're like, it was a snow monster. But no, it's Again. just one of the hikers. And in context, this is not, this does not explain what happened to them right. in my opinion. Right. But I have heard that out of, outside of this context, context as a possible theory. So this shines some light on that. I like that. Yeah. The hikers then set to work making a shelter where they would leave non-essential survival gear for their return trip. And Mm. this is a hiking standard, I guess. So when you get to the hardest part of your trip, what you do is create a a shelter and put all non-essential hiking gear there. So this would be like extra skis, extra boots, extra survival things that you don't necessarily need to make this strenuous trip so it's something to make the packs a little bit lighter makes sense and everything's down to like bare bones and you come back for it after you've peaked that's exactly right that's exactly right and one of the most notable things in this um encampment which was later found was that georgie had even left his treasured mandolin which a lot of people have given accolades to the group for that because they followed every hiking principle to a T. Okay. They didn't try to cut any corners. Everything was done exactly correctly. And even the way you prepare this certain bundle with everything in it was prepared exactly correctly. You're also supposed to um, get enough firewood for Mm -hmm. your return. Oh, okay. Which makes sense. So you don't have to do it when you get back. Exactly. Because you're going to be exhausted. And they had done everything correctly. Okay. Um, So it really shows their attention to detail. And they were really very bright they're not reckless not at all they are very much whatever happened to them did not happen to them because they cut corners or put themselves in 
that's exactly right. Stupid scenarios. Right. Because some of the podcasts that I've listened to kind of almost say, well, they just willy nilly went into this forest mm-hmm. and decided to hike this very challenging mountain. That's not at all. What Clearly happened not. Here. That's not at all what happened here. With most of the morning gone spent working on this shelter, the hikers are ready to move. The final two images show the group skiing single file into a snowy gray haze. And this is a pretty legendary photo. If you've seen it, it uses it's used a lot to kind of sum up the hikers. And I will totally admit it's very ominous. Most of the photos of them are so sweet and they have the smiling faces and they're hugging each other and they're just having so much fun. This one, though, is it's kind of chilling because, you know, it's them literally, you know, just in their potentially last moments. But and they're so oblivious. They're so oblivious. Exactly. About to happen. And and they're. They're committed. Like to look at them, they, I mean, they know what they're doing is very challenging, but they feel very compelled because of their love of the sport to keep going. Hmm. Sunset would come at 4.58 that day with twilight at 5.52. But because of the heavy cloud cover, they thought it best to set up camp early to avoid getting caught in the dark. They chose a spot on an east-facing slope, which would allow them to pack up quickly in the morning and head straight up the mountain. It took several hours to set up camp, and the hikers were in their tent by 9 p.m., ready for the next day's climb. Unfortunately, they wouldn't live to see the sunrise. On February 16th, Rafina Dyatlov, Igor's younger sister, walks into the office of the hiking commission at the Svedlovsky Ural Polytechnic Institute. She's following in her brother's footsteps of studying radio engineering. She is looking for news of her brother and his team. Mid-February is when students begin flocking back to campus to begin classes, but her brother has not been seen, and it is now three days past his expected arrival. Okay. Unfortunately, the hiking commission does not share her concern. They are led to believe that a few days delay is expected in expeditions of this magnitude and thought it would be best to wait until further inquiries were made. Which, to me, that does make sense. I mean, this is not like, you know, you're just catching a flight. I leave on this day. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to run into delays. It may take a little longer. So I can see how a couple of days in this scenario, though those couple of days could literally mean life or death, but I can also see how you wouldn't necessarily panic. Completely fair. Mm-hmm. Rafina, on the other hand, wasn't buying it. Well, she would be panic. She would be panic. And she also knew the tremendous outdoorsman her brother had become. And her brother lived for the mountains. I mean, this was all he wanted to do all the time. And she knew if he wasn't back, there was a reason for it. Okay. And like not a good reason. Okay. So she felt in her heart, something is wrong. Okay. Members of the Diatlov family were not the only ones concerned by the hiker's absence. Starting on February 13th, the original scheduled day of the hikers' return, calls started flooding in to the UPI Hiking Commission from concerned family members. Each time they were told the same thing. The hikers are probably just delayed. There's nothing to be done. On February 17th, four days after their expected arrival date, the club finally bowed to pressure and sent a message to Vijay, the village where the hikers would last make contact before their expedition up uh, to Mount O'Torton. And, um, you know, they would return there on their way back. News came back quickly. The hikers had departed, but never returned. Okay, so now panic. Now something's wrong. Exactly. Upon receiving the news, a search party is assembled. But it is slow from the very beginning because either the Dyatlov group never filed their their route with the hiking commission which I don't believe for a second. It, that doesn't ring Doesn't ring accurate. true for anyone yeah. in this group. Um, or someone at the hiking commission had just lost it. Okay. All right. Unfortunately, I'm going to go with that. Just yeah, I, based on everything else that them doing to a T and like, you know. Exactly. I can't imagine them not have filed it. Because that's important. Oh, uh, yeah. Very important. Yeah. And I would think to get their certification, that would be like a box you have to check, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like documentation. Yes. Exactly. On Friday, February 20th, the search party officially begins, with officials deciding to start in the city of Ivdel, considered the gateway to the northern Urals, and then continue to Vijay. They're so, like, no, it's okay. Oh, I was just going to say, so now we're already a week late. 
like they should have been back a week ago mm-hmm. and the search party doesn't even start for a week. Right. Okay. Right. Because they took four days to even start the search party. Mm-hmm. Then from there, they can't figure out where to go. And now we finally just said, well, let's just start here and mm-hmm. see where it takes us. A helicopter and a group of experienced hikers join the search. Attempts were also made to contact other hiking groups that may have passed the Dyatlov group and may have known of their travel plans. Because a lot of these groups would meet each other on the trains, they would meet each other at these like shelters, and they could talk about their plans. They would compare maps, they would talk about where are you going, where am I going. So they were trying to find anybody that might have known what was going on. Okay. Officials finally heard of Evgen Maslinikov and asked him to assist in the search. Not only is he a distinguished UPI alumnus, but he is also one of the best backcountry skiers in the city. Hmm. Ironically, he is also the person that personally signed off on Igor Dyatlov's proposed course into the Ural Mountains. Okay. So it turns out he knows their trip. He does have a connection. Okay. Yeah. And Igor, that Igor sought this guy out and was like, hey, you're the best. Can I run my plan by you? Okay. And so he's the one that signed off on the plan. He's the perfect person he's then the to have. He's the perfect person. Exactly. Okay. Not only is he an accomplished skier, like cross-country skier, but he knows their route. Okay. He ha- he acknowledged that the hikers were strong, but the climb they had planned was difficult. He relayed the group's plan to reach Otorten, and then he himself boarded a plane to Ifdel to actively participate in the search. So many people came to their aid, which I just think is is a wonderful quality. Well, it sounds like it's very much like a family type. Very close-knit. Right. So like especially in this hiking circle. Yes. So these are colleagues, but you probably not everybody, not every hiker is doing this. Like you're running into the same people, the same faces. That's right. And so you care about these people. That's exactly right. On February 23rd, the team also recruits assistance from the Monsi tribe, which are the group of native people living in the area. Whose track they were following. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's around this time that Yura Yudin returns to the university after spending the rest of his holiday at home. While students are shocked to see him, as he was expected to be part of the Dyatlov team, he is equally as shocked to learn that his classmates have not returned. So there's been no communication. Nobody knew he separated from the group and he didn't know. It's 1959. I guess not. Like you wouldn't. Wow. Okay. I just kind of got chills because that's really. Yeah. Can you imagine showing back up and realizing all of your friends that you've spent this very intimate time with. Right. Are gone. No. And nobody's heard from them. No. So he's shocked. Sure. He's expecting to just walk into his dorm and be like, hey, guys, how was the rest of the trip? Wow. Okay. Yeah. I feel for Yuri a lot. You know, there's survivor's guilt. Oh, you my gosh. You know it. Um, and yeah. what and the what ifs. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The next day, searchers spread out on foot and aerial searches were performed by air. But there was little to go on. Communication between search groups also proved to be difficult. Radio transmission was spotty at best. And aerial crews had to note drop to communicate with ground crews. Like, is that what it sounds like? Literally dropping notes? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Now, think about the other way. How do the ground crew communicate with aerial (laughs) search crews? So they came up with this complicated um, signaling system. So if two hikers, like rescue hikers, Mm -hmm. laid parallel to each other in the snow, it went, everything was okay. Okay. They signaled direction, which way they were going, by having four hikers line up like an arrow pointing to the direction that they were going to head. So pretty innovative. It is. But also just painfully slow and frustrating. I love the determination that like, okay, we're not going to let the fact that we have no way of communicating with you stop us from communicating. But wow. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The aerial search wound up spotting some ski tracks and they pointed a group of nine rescue hikers in the direction of a small adjacent river. And upon reaching the river, the team were not only able to pick up the Dyatlov group's trail, but they also found one of their campsites. Okay. So they're thinking, okay, like we're, we're on their trail. Like we're going to find them. Boris Slopstov, the leader of this team, is only 22. Wow. Yeah. He's a member of the hiking club and not only knows Dayatlov, but considers him a friend. 
Later, he told reporters if something could have happened to Dyatlov's crew, it could have happened to any of them. He felt it his duty to do everything he could do to help. The group sets up a camp for the night, but the next morning the winds are so strong, all remaining ski trails have been obscured. Oh, no. Frustrating. That is frustrating. The team has no choice but to continue to follow the river. Once they reach the riverbed, Slopstov suggests the group break into teams to cover more ground. Slopstov pairs up with Mikhail Savarin, a classmate and hiking club member. With the winds increasing and the sun slowly fading, he knows they need to work quickly. Then Savarin sees it, the tent. The men race towards it. Savarin picks up an ice axe and brings it down on the tent. And that is where I'm going to leave you for part one. No! <laughs> I knew you were going to do it. I knew you were going to do it. Did I have that twinkle in my I eye? Could see it in your face. I really could. I was like, she's not. Oh, she is. Oh, I totally am. I totally wow. am. So here we are. The search teams have found their tent. Everything in it looks untouched, except for being slightly caved in from some uh, snow cover. But the poles are still standing. And it looks like the hikers had kind of just stepped out to get firewood and be back. Wow. That's all we know so far. Okay. Well, now you have to join us next week, <laughs> listeners, because I have a feeling it's going to get even crazier from here. Oh, so good. Okay. All right. Join us next week <laughs> for more thrills and chills. Literal chills. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us at the Dark Goat, guys. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. This has been a Just Us Gals production with artwork by Justice Holmes and music by Ryan Creep.